When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Shot podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we are headed to the UK to chat with the host of the TGS Outdoors YouTube channel, Johnny Carter. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 161. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Happy New Year, everybody. It's good to be back with you in the brand new year, this being the first episode in 2022. Still getting used to saying that, as I'm sure many of you all are. I've screwed up many a dates as I've written them down or typed them out over the last couple of weeks, but such is life in January, right? All right, we've got a great show coming up for you today. Been looking forward to doing this episode for quite a long time. Johnny and I have kept in touch off and on over the past year or so, chatting, hunting, shooting, shotguns, as you might imagine. And for one reason or another, it took me this long to finally get him on the show. But I figured why not kick off 2022 with a bang, pun intended. We got the host of the TGS Outdoors YouTube channel, Johnny Carter, joining us in just a moment a couple of quick items before we get into our interview today. Patreon giveaway. The December giveaway has ended. I just notified the winner of the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp 2022 hunt. I haven't spoken to this person yet, so I'm not going to announce the winner on today's show. I want to wait to hear back from this person. Just make sure that he is, in fact, interested in this giveaway. If not, we'll put it back up for giveaway for the rest of the patrons and we'll get John something else. But assuming that John does want to go to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp to hunt grouse or woodcock this fall, and honestly, who wouldn't? 
The January giveaway will be an Onyx Elite card. One year subscription to all 50 states. The Onyx Elite package, which actually now comes with a whole bunch of other cool benefits, discounts, all kinds of stuff that Onyx is cramming into their Elite subscription. So whether you're an Elite subscriber already and didn't know that, or you're just a premium subscriber, hunt one state, sign up for one state, worth taking a look at. If you hunt two states, three states, very quickly it becomes pretty realistic to step up to the elite subscription. And not only do you get all of the things that you've come to know and love about Onyx, again, they are continually adding more and more value to the Onyx elite subscription. So thank you to everybody that continues to be a Patreon supporter of the show. Your contributions mean a lot to the existence and the future of the show. And I appreciate it, which is why I'm working hard to find things to give away to my Patreon supporters like Hunt at Pine Ridge, Onyx Elite Cards, etc., etc. Right, you may have caught in the intro, this being the new year, first year as the Birdshot Podcast. We are without some sponsors. We have new sponsor, and that will likely be sort of a topic of conversation a little bit this year as we set out on our own and establish new relationships and partnerships. Thank you to all of the previous supporters and partners of this show. Could not have done it without their support. And I have worked with a lot of great companies and people along the way with this show. And I'm excited to continue many of those relationships moving forward with the Birdshot Podcast. Upland Gun Company, new sponsor for 2022. If you've been following along, paying attention, you may know that Outside of the Birdshot Podcast, I do work for Upland Gun Company. Going back to May of last year, and I've had a chance now to work with a lot of customers, carry the guns, shoot the guns, hunted with one primarily all last fall. My little 20-gauge Venus that quickly became my favorite gun to carry and the one that I am the most proficient with of all the guns that I own. So love that gun. And more importantly, I have so much enjoyed working with customers and prospective customers at Upland Gun Company. I talk to so many people that listen to the show and then I'm talking to them as prospective buyers of Upland Gun Company and it just makes for such enjoyable conversations. Being able to connect with listeners but also help people build their dream gun at the same time. It has been an absolute blast. I'm super excited about the future prospects of working with Upland Gun Company as we move into 2022 and naturally Upland Gun Company has become a sponsor of the Birdshot podcast. So consider me wholly biased in that regard. You're definitely going to hear a little bit about Upland Gun Company on the podcast from time to time. You guys know me. You know that I work for Upland Gun Company. If you have questions, I would love to talk to you as a listener of the show. I'd be happy to provide information, specifications, anything at all you want to know about Upland Gun Company. I am happy to help you. You can contact me at nick at birdshotpodcast.com or probably better, nick.larson at uplandguncompany.com. So that's that. Now you know, Upland Gun Company, supporter of the Birdshot Podcast. And I would love to help you design and build your next Upland bird hunting gun What's Upland Gun Company? And also, new sponsor of the Birdshot Podcast in 2022, the Upland Institute. Combining six decades of professional training, judging, testing, and hunting experience into a complete program to help you and your dog prepare for the next season. If you're unfamiliar with Upland Institute, it is the video training series put together by Ron Bame of the Hunting Dog Podcast and Justin McGrail, professional dog trainer, both friends of the show, and very excited to have them on board with the Birdshot Podcast this year. As a totally amateur bird dog trainer, I have sung the praises of Justin McGrail's guidance, 
methodologies, insights, and advice that he shared on a whole bunch of episodes over on Ron Bay's podcast. I've always referred people to those that are looking for more information, whether they're just getting started or have a particular question. Justin and Ron both have a ton of experience and a lot to share on the subject matter. The video series launched last year. I've had a chance to run through it and refreshed my memory on a whole bunch of concepts, drills, and strategies as I was working with my one-year-old setter last summer, Rose, leading up to her second season. And I found the video aspect of it all, combined with Justin's approach to explaining things, training scenarios, all the stuff we've come to know and love about his interviews and the Q&A sessions over on Ron's podcast, that all carries through into this video series. And if you are looking for some assistance and guidance, and taking your training game to the next level this offseason, the Upland Institute is absolutely worth a look. They've got a number of courses over there, ranging from foundations and fundamentals to advanced bird work. They've got the train retrieve, and you can buy the complete series if you're interested in that, or you can break it up, choose which one is right for you and your dog at this time. Head over to uplandinstitute.com to learn more about it. If you got questions on my experience with it, you can always reach out to me. And more importantly, you can always reach out to Ron and Justin to learn more about the Upland Institute and how it may be beneficial to you and your bird dogs. Thanks to Ron and Justin for supporting the Bird Shop Podcast. I'm sure there's some listeners out there that will find value in the Upland Institute courses. Check it out, uplandinstitute.com. And I think that's enough announcements and updates for today. This intro's already getting a little long, so we're going to get into today's show. i got to set this up a little bit. If you haven't seen TGS Outdoors YouTube channel hosted by Johnny Carter, our guest today, let me just say this. I highly, highly encourage you to check out the channel. I'm very confident there's going to be something there that will interest you. You listen to this show. I can only assume you share some of my interest when it comes to shotguns and wing shooting and learning more about this very, very unique and rich, rich world of tradition and history. And Johnny's YouTube channel, TGS Outdoors, is a great place to go if you're looking to soak in a little more info and entertainment in this world. Videos are very well produced, just like this podcast going way back to the beginning. They started at a good level, but as the channel has gone on, the quality and the production value has gone up and up and up and up. And it's some of the most entertaining and enjoyable stuff that I have found and watch when it comes to shotguns, wing shooting. And Johnny is in England, which adds a completely different element to the aesthetic and the culture and the taste and the traditions of shotguns and wing shooting. Personally, I enjoy learning more about it. That will be evident in the conversation that Johnny and I had today. We went in a lot of different directions, but there was a lot to cover. And I hope that during the course of this interview, like me, while I was talking to Johnny, I learned a lot about hunting and shooting culture in the UK. I gained a lot of value for perspective, learned some things that I maybe had ideas or assumptions in my head about the way things were and found out that those weren't true, which is kind of the norm, right? When it comes to other countries, other cultures, our brains and our minds have a tendency to paint broad strokes and sort of compartmentalize things. But I thought it was a very, very interesting conversation. I really enjoyed having it. I hope you do as well. And I mentioned this during the show, but I have every intention of bringing Johnny back on the show. And if you're a fan of his channel, you'll know there's so many different things we could have talked about that we didn't. So if you have ideas or suggestions for the next time that Johnny and I talk, I would love to hear that feedback, those questions or comments you have anything at all, email me at nick at birdshotpodcast.com. All right, I'm going to get out of the way. Let's jump into today's interview and welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast of TGS Outdoors YouTube channel, Johnny Carter.
No, sorry. No worries, man. We are we're rolling. Birdshot Podcast. Welcome to the show, Johnny Carter. Thanks for joining me today, man. Nick, mate, thank you very much for having me. This has been an interview I've been looking forward to. I've kind of been bugging you for the last year or so, kind of telling you where I was going to get you on here, and I had a whole bunch of different things going on, as as of course you do with with your YouTube channel. That's I don't. Would you say it's blowing up now, or is it kind of a steady growth? What What are your thoughts on that? It's been a steady growth. We have had an acceleration in the last three months, but I think okay. people will presume it's blowing up because we're really doubling down on our production quality more so than we ever have. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely evident. And uh, yeah, we're going to spend plenty of time talking about TGS outdoors today. But first, let's let's cover the basics, Johnny. I know it is Friday morning here, a very cold Friday morning here where I'm at. And it is Friday afternoon where you are a little bit ahead of schedule. For me, we're not keeping you out of the pub right now, are we? No, not at all. Not at all. I, work, I say I work Saturday. I'm shooting tomorrow. So I'm okay. currently just on wind down, getting ready to go home, see the kids, and then I'm yeah, building up to tomorrow. Excellent. I say that I was shooting yesterday as well. I'm very decadent. <laughs> We're gonna. T- I want to talk about sort of the the structure of the shooting season and stuff. This is a question I asked you back in September. But, anyways, you're in the UK. Tell us a little bit about where you are. Where are you from, Johnny? I am from the south of England. Um, yeah, Wiltshire is my home county, which is the best county in England. Although I now live in Hampshire, which is a little bit more um, rough. Is the polite word for it. So I, I don't say teas anymore. I started dropping my teas. So it's, it's <laughs> butter, not butter. Um, I was born, my my dad's uh, was an agricultural researcher when I was a kid and then worked, has worked on and off in agriculture whilst I was growing up. And that kind of led me to never wanting to be in agriculture whatsoever. And but However, I saw gamekeepers and shooting. Yeah. And that, that was the career I fancied. And it's been a, a fairly long and winding road. I've tried a few different things i think you have to anyone who does one thing from 16 to 60 i mean i think that's just old-fashioned that doesn't really happen anymore does it yeah uh and i I was a gamekeeper i worked in africa for a bit i've done done a few cool things uh, but i wound up in the uk gun trade by some unfortunate circumstances i suppose (laughs) and then never left for what 12 years now yeah that's crazy. I, you know, watching the channel and, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of your videos. I won't claim to have watched every single one of them, but you don't want to. <laughs> well, it's kind of like when people tell me they start listening to this podcast and they go back to episode one, I just cringe because it's, uh, as I'm sure your channel has, and I know your channel has, I mean, it's a, it's a continued growth and improvement for sure. Yeah. And I mean, we even, we look stuff. We start five years ago. You look back at your, your first videos and you go, wow, I didn't even know what a camera was. Right. I, right. I, I'm clearly still on like some sort of weird sales mode, and I've, I don't, I'd never lie. I'm not, I'm not a liar, but you know, there's there's clearly a lot, way too much opinion. And you go, come on, grow up, mate, grow up. Come on, get with the program, <laughs> get a better camera, put decent microphones in. Come on, sort yourself out. And probably the same with you. You go, man, I wish I, I wish I knew what I knew now then. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's so interesting how your you know your perspective at the time shapes your view of the world, and. I mean, it's it's in everything in life, but of course, like this, when you record something and then you can go back and listen to it or watch it, then you see and like only you truly know what your perspective was at the time and why you were thinking that way or saying those things. And, you know, you've changed so much in a year, two, three years time, and you just think about things totally differently. And that actually brings up an interesting point about your, and we'll talk about this, the Longthorn gun that I watched that video earlier this week where you're choosing the stock and you're as it relates to shotguns, how you did not like burl walnut stocks, but like no, your sort of taste and aesthetics change. And I think anybody that kind of has this 
this little gun affliction will have experienced those changes in taste and and aesthetics over time i thought that was pretty interesting definitely i say it's about getting rid of your hang-ups and we're all we're all subjects to our, our cultural surroundings aren't we so you know for me it's got to be fine rose and scroll side by sides with dark red wood with a little bit of black in it and that's what it should be yeah. and you know without sounding offensive burr walnut it's, it's american it's for the <laughs> americans <laughs> and getting over that and just going yeah but it's beautiful get over yourself like why, why should it matter if someone judges you have what you want and, and that's a very freeing thing isn't it to to grow into that yeah security with yourself maybe it's yeah. a bit deep isn't it for five minutes in <laughs> hey we're yeah we're going deep johnny uh i mentioned this to you but it's like th- I'll, I'll apologize to my listeners in advance this interview could hop around and we could go a million different directions with this and that's again me being a sort of a fan and watching your videos for the last few years and there's just there's a lot to go over and we'll just we'll just say that you know this will in all likelihood not be the last time we will bring you on the show so hopefully folks have some good feedback and thoughts and we can dive deeper on certain topics next time. But let's, I don't want to, I don't want to blow over this TGS outdoors, YouTube channel. Oh yeah. You work at is TGS outdoors. Is that a gun shop? Uh, so uh, it's, it's been a long road. I started in the gun trade. I then came to, I worked in a couple of gun shops. I then came to the gun shop. We had a very original name. I always TGS. Yeah. <laughs> the gun shop TGS. Yeah. So, uh, we, I started here and, and joined with my current now business partner and we were very small with great intentions to take over the world. And we, we grew and then we started a YouTube channel. We changed from, uh, and we called the YouTube channel the gun shop mm-hmm. being called the gun shop. Turns out we weren't allowed bank accounts. We weren't allowed anything. Nobody ah, wanted yes. to touch us. Facebook tried kicking us off because the word gun is, you know, is yep. toxic. Apparently, uh, it's scary. Uh, so uh, we changed the name to TGS, The Gun Shop. Uh, and we'd always had the, the Gun Shop logo and a TGS logo as an abbreviated version that we'd put on small stuff. So that kind of stuck, TGS Outdoors. We had to change the name of the channel first, and then the the shop followed suit. And then about a year ago, we, we parted ways. And we're still under uh, the same parent company we were before. But now, really confusingly, we, we have the same name, the same logo, but we're different. Ah, okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, so we started, yeah, we started the, the gun, the YouTube channel was the gun shops and yep. then we, we've just grown separately. We're yeah. now a, a strong self-sustaining entity. So why not run it as such without being tied down? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Well, and bef- so, so it's the YouTube channel, but before we hit record while I was, I was testing some audio there. You had, uh, you had a customer in your ear talking to you about chokes. I mean, you're, you're in, you're still doing work on guns or how does, how does that fit into the picture? So I only stopped gunsmithing. I didn't stop. I, I still do a little bit here and there because it's still something I, I thoroughly enjoy. Yeah. Uh, three months ago. However, we now outsource a lot of, say we, the shop now outsources a lot of their work. And however, a lot of the technical questions, I'm I'm still here. Our office is two floors above the gun shop, so they just walk on up and ask me. And I'm gotcha. why would I not help? Yeah, yeah, okay, it's, yeah, very cool. Well, let's mentioning gunsmithing there. That was one thing I definitely didn't want to miss, and that's going back to some of the like some of the videos that I think initially really pulled me into your channel, and that was because my interest in double guns and particularly vintage side-by-sides was growing at the time. And, you know, I didn't really know a whole lot about them. So 
one of the things that I do when I don't know about something, you know, YouTube is a place that I go to look for information on certain things. And you've got videos where you were, I'm thinking of, I don't remember what it was called, but you would go off that. What's the, um, what's the auction site in over there? That's got a star in it. Something star. Oh, Gunstar. Yeah. Gunstar. Back, uh, yeah. back from the brink. And, yes. Yeah, back that's from it. The brink. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> back from the brink. You went on there and you bought a super cheap old English side by side. And like, I didn't really know what the plan was going to be, but then you start taking this thing literally back from the brink. I mean, you took it down and like, it was obvious that you, you had some serious gunsmithing training and knew what the heck you were doing inside those guns. So yeah, how did you how did you develop your experience, skills, knowledge, know how, and gunsmithing? Uh, so I I learned on the job as much as anything else. I had a a very good mentor who I did sort of went and learned under, and that was I was working in a gun shop at the time as the gunnery manager, and well, essentially I I went to work there, and their gunsmith left about well two weeks beforehand. So we were using an outworker, which I mean to be fair, most gun shops do because sustaining a gunsmith is expensive in space and time and you have to get a lot of work in to make it worthwhile yeah so um yeah i, I got i got taught by uh, an older gentleman and i to be fair i've always been very ha- hands-on with a lot of things um, made knives and used to help my grandfather who was an engineer do things in his garage and always been into it so it wasn't a great step for me to be able to learn to take a gun apart when i can take lots of other things apart and put them back together yeah and spot and like with anything, you do enough of it, you see enough normal ones to then know what abnormal is. And most of sort of provincial gunsmithing, aka gun shop gunsmithing work, is diagnosing problems and fixing problems. Yeah. It's it's not romantic. I didn't train in London, which I'm <laughs> kind of glad for, to be honest, glad for, because I think you'd then be tied into that career for life. And there's a certain stigma to those who are London trained. Yeah. For the most part, some of them are lovely. I want to say the most part, actually, they're really lovely. But there is a certain stigma to some some of them. I'm kind of glad that I didn't do that. Plus, I'm I'm not the sort of person I couldn't have commuted to London every day. It would have yeah. killed me. How far away from London are you? I'll have to check my maps later. But. In in the grand scheme of America, we're like an hour and ten on the train. It's not okay. far. Okay. Yeah. But it it's just the the concept of it. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not a townie, mate. Well, yeah. I'm not. I mean, a, yeah, I'm not a city boy. Yeah, even over here, you know, I mean, an hour commute like that was nothing really. But now, they're with remote remote work and stuff, I mean, a, a lot of people are desperately trying to get away from those commutes. I know that for sure. So yeah, you're not alone in that. <laughs> yeah. So with your with your knowledge of of guns and gunsmithing and like you know enough to be dangerous, you, you know more than enough to be dangerous. I, I think would be fair to say. But at what point do you like when it comes to Johnny's guns? I mean, are you, will you jump into your own guns, take them apart, break them down, do stuff? Does it depend on which one or when? Oh, you- yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's, that sort of thing doesn't doesn't worry me at all. There, there's a limit to my, my abilities. I don't weld. Um, okay. My best mate's a welder, so he does most of my, my joining of metal for me if, if I need it. But yeah. to be honest, when a gun gets that broken, it's usually not viable to repair. Yeah. Uh, the value of guns in this country is a lot less than it is over there, certainly from, from conversations I've had with a lot of people. Yeah. So if a 110 year old cyber side, if a hammer breaks in half, unless it's a good quality gun, most people just put it in the bin. The official yeah. bin where it's recorded for scrap, obviously, because we're not allowed to put guns in the bin, but you know the score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it, a lot of the reason that I, I moved out of it is, with the influx of, of Turkish guns and not the devaluing of the cyber side market because the value of quality cyber sides is rocketing back up. 
Is it really? People weren't having the cool repairs done anymore, yeah. and that's sad. And just replacing a fire, making a fire ping, and sticking a new one in, or retiming ejectors, or, or sticking an ejector leg back together, it's not fulfilling work. And I sound like I'm spoiled because work, you know, in the modern world, work shouldn't be fulfilling, but it really yeah, should, yeah. shouldn't it? Like you should come home. You spend eight hours a day, nine hours a day, five, six days a week at work. You, you, I, I want to be happy doing it. But I, I think that's... I, yeah. I think yeah. most people would agree. Yeah. If you have the option to be happy, why not be happy? I think exactly. is probably the better way of putting that. Yeah. That's the goal for, for many people to be able to enjoy what they do and be fulfilled. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's never to take that for granted because probably the same as you, we've all been in places where you go, I really don't want to be doing this right now. Yeah. Yep. Again, going back Clock to that pers- perspective things. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Yes. All right. Gunsmithing. Before we leave that, yeah. What, tell me about, and this is sort of like my high level understanding that, and you, you've alluded to it somewhat in that being a, a tradesman gunsmith, taking the time to apprentice and, and do that kind of stuff that, that culture around the world is it's becoming it seems like it's becoming harder and harder and and that's where we have this sort of push and pull for production guns and guns that are made on the bench and and there's a a growing middle ground where we can use you know sort of the best of modern technology and then the best of gunsmithing and and handwork to which i think the your your visit to the Rosini factory was a really cool example of that and showing really what was possible but what do you, what's the sentiment as far as like gunsmithing in the trade? I mean, is that like, do you know people, young, young people that are still growing up saying, I'm going to be a gunsmith and going into that? Or is that not happening? I think it's, it's happening. It's not happening less. The big gun, the big gun houses still take on the same amount of apprentices they always did, okay. which is, is not many. Right. However, younger people coming into the, the sort of provincial trade, what's the point? In terms of the future of the UK gun trade, it's not as secure as, let's say, designing apps mm. or plumbing. It's not – I'm about to say, sort of drop a bomb because I don't actually mean it. But if someone said, would you get your son into the UK gun trade, I I don't know if I would. Yeah. I. It's not as secure as it was certainly when I started. You know, when I started in – in Genki Bing or shooting like that, there was never any talk of it being finished or the end or change or or scaling back, just progression and progression. And now that that isn't there quite so much, you know, there's more and more restrictions. I mean, we're not talking massive, but I think young people aren't interested potentially. And if they are, the gunsmithing side isn't as romantic as it once was. Yeah, maybe that's really depressing, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah, it's yeah, well, well, it is, but but that's, I think that's what I would have, you know, if you were to ask me that question, what my thoughts were, which are obviously different than yours, but I would have sort of surmised that that was kind of the situation because that's what I that's what I see here read about that it sort of is going that way, and I mean, yeah, there, it's twofold. It's one, you know, is there a demand for these guns that can support the industry? That's one. And then the other side is, like you mentioned, restrictions and sort of the slow eating away of sort of <coughs> certain liberties that, that might allow us to do these things or own these guns, use these guns. And a, there's a whole layer of complexity versus restrictions what you have over there in the hunting and shooting world versus what we have over here and i definitely don't want to spend this entire podcast talking about that stuff maybe that could could be another episode but yeah it's i think 
that's probably the answer is, you know, just looking at the long-term future stability. Like, yeah, I would be like, I don't really know what's going to happen. I, I, I want to caveat what I said before, because it's way too depressing that the market for the guns that are made by gun makers as opposed to gunsmiths. So it's a slightly, slightly different thing that when you're apprentice, generally apprentices will go on to become gun makers as opposed to gunsmiths. Yeah. Not that it's, a, it's not a hugely fine line, but there is a line. They are, they're high. You know, Holland's is selling guns. Dixon's is selling guns. All, all of these mm-hmm. UK gun makers, of which there aren't many, let's, let's be honest, a dozen off the top of my head, I could probably name who make enough guns to not just be counted as a guy who makes guns. Maybe not a dozen, actually. It doesn't matter. They are taking people on. However, an industry of a dozen businesses isn't really as much of a, an industry as anything else. A lot of them use outworkers, and, and to be one of those outworkers is a good thing to be. Yeah. So I'm not saying that there isn't a future there. I'm just saying that out of all of the places you could put yourself and value yourself, I wouldn't put myself into that much of a niche. There you go. That, that's probably it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think most young people are probably thinking the same sort of thing when you can go and train as an engineer or toolmaker and then move into gun making later on once you've got a very transferable skill. Yeah, which another great example of that was, I think, in your Longthorn video. Remind me the, the owner, founder of Longthorn. What was his name? Uh, James Stewart or Jim. Jim. Yeah, and he was he was sort of a machinist engineering type before he got into gun make. Is that correct? Yeah, so he um, he went on to be a tool. He was a toolmaker. Yes, yeah, uh, that's went right. Went to Australia for ten years, engineering, CNCing, designing. He is a a wizard. Works in aerospace, F one, all sorts. So moving to guns was a an odd one for him, I think. But it, yeah. it's very transferable. Yeah, and he and he talked in the video about how that that sort of gave him it gave him different perspective, and you know, and then coming into this age old tradition of gun making which you know literally these guns were quote unquote perfected in the late 1800s but he's got a different different viewpoint on some stuff and has a lot to bring to the table and i mean i've, I've never held or shot a longthorn gun but looking at them they uh they're a thing of beauty that's for sure they're not bad <laughs> what's your length of pull johnny uh 16 and a quarter on my sporting gun and right. 16 on my game gun okay all right and that's see that's that's long. I think most people would think that is long, but you are six foot seven, so yeah. it's it's not crazy. No, I, I actually it's not as long as I could probably get away with. I know people at six foot two who have that length of pull. I prefer a slightly shorter gun because I shoot a lot mm-hmm. of short guns, so my gun mount isn't as open as it probably should be. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think. Well, I so fifteen is is I've been fit. I've been to a couple of gun fitters. One of them had me at sixteen, but his gun fitting style lent itself towards setting people up with a much longer length of pull. I'm six feet tall, which yeah. you know this better than anybody. Your your height is not a direct, exactly a direct correlation with your length of pull, but it's it's sort of a... It's an know, indicator, right? Yeah, yeah 15, exactly. 15 and a quarter, maybe 15 and a half, that sort of yeah. thing, depending on your neck and your hair. There's so much that goes into gun fit, and it's, it's yeah. a thing that people oversimplify massively, and it's mm. probably my biggest bugbear of all time. Yeah, yeah, I do want to talk to you about... about Gun fitting. We'll see. We'll take see us how far. Have you got seven hours? Let's go. For it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that that could be absolutely a separate episode entirely. But that um, going back to the to the Longthorn, and they were joking with you in the video about how tall you were and how you had to get a. You were limited in the wood that you could choose because you had to be long enough, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, but like with all these things, the blank has got to be the right length. And when you yes. need a lot of wood, the, the Turkish, when they cut their wood, are obviously looking to maximize the yes. amount of blanks they can get because they charge per slab. Mm-hmm. 
so cutting it an inch longer than they need is inefficient. Yes. Which is unfortunate, yeah. which gave me the choice of about 10 out of a room yeah. of about 500. <laughs> yeah. Well, Not that I'm complaining because, were... you know, yes. they're mint pieces of wood. So Yes. Yeah. We could see what you, what you wound up with. It was, uh, it was cool. What was that experience like? I mean, I know you enjoyed it, but when you were able to, you're in the shop, you're doing some gun fitting exercises. He's got the pheasant on the far wall and, you know, he's watching you mount and, and you know, he's, he's the gun fitter, he's the gun maker. So there was so much like the, the whole supply chain there was just condensed and you've got it all right there. And then he, you'd make a couple mounts, swing through the pheasant and then he walks it over to the bench and he starts working on it. I mean, that had been super cool. But it, it was a privilege. It was a privilege to go through that experience. It felt sort of like the olden days for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 you can get that in other countries, but that's about the only place you'll get that in the UK, more or less, where you can have your gun fit there and then by a gun fitter who's also the gunsmith. And I, I like that. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, it was sort of similar to not necessarily all one person, but uh, when you and your friend went to the Rosini factory, which is another great video for anybody wanting to check things out when you go to spare hour yeah <laughs> yeah yes the rosini factory tour well worth the hour mainly i mean i don't know about you like but my just i just love seeing those nice figured pieces of wood come to life i mean it's just it's i don't know it's incredible <laughs> i i i've collected a few blanks over my life like, I, I like guns don't get me wrong but quality pieces of walnut are yeah are a special thing and to be fair i think ongoing I don't know whether Jim would be up for it because probably not, but I would rather one gun with a dozen stocks than a dozen guns. I could, I could get, I could buy into that. Yeah. Because yep. the gun does the job. You know, the mm -hmm. barrel length that you like, you know, the way it swings, you know, that handles, you can kind of make a bond with it. And it's nice to have a few different tools for different jobs. Don't get me yes. wrong, but now imagine going, you know, what I fancy today. I don't going to wear a, I'm not going to wear, I said lie, I wear green and black shirts every day of my life. But imagine that I didn't for a second and I woke up and I, all pink, I quite like a pink plaid. And um, imagine that I woke up and I thought, you know, I, you're not going to put on the same shirt every day. I want my gun to look slightly different today. How cool would that be? And, and that's kind of what I've got along with two stocks and my Maruka. I've got three stocks, four, and, and one of my other guns, I've got a few. And I don't change them often, but it's yeah. nice to look at the nice pieces of wood and go, mm, that's pretty. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the certainly one of the one of the most unique things about any particular gun because it is a hundred percent unique. You know that grain, that figure. It's yeah, that's that's what makes makes a gun special to a person that owns it. I think. Yeah, in the world of laser engraving, right? The wood yeah. is the unique part. Yeah, exactly. Without sounding nasty about laser engraving, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah. So yeah, laser engraving has has come a long way, right? Oh, massively. Like this last yeah. 10 years has actually seen it become good. Yeah. Very good. Well, yeah. I, I would, I'm proud to have a laser engraved gun and I'm, I'm not sure I'd, I'd never, I never thought I'd say that. I'm happy to be at a point where we can say that. I can only see it getting better as well, right? Is the Longthorn, is that laser or is that hand? Entirely laser engraved. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Their that, machine is very cool though, to be fair. Beautiful. Yeah. And there's laser engraving and laser engraving. Same with anything, right? Is their machine for laser engraving. I only, well, we're not allowed to show it, but I've, I've seen it and I'm going to talk about it. I think, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to, but I'm going to, <laughs> I think it's something like 600,000 pounds, the machine. That's wild. You know, we originally spoke about getting it engraved with some Spitfires and we came up a few designs and Jim's daughter, Chloe, does all of the vectoring and design work for all their engraving and she's very talented. The The thing is, and it's what I learned at Rizzini as well, is when they put a prototype in, they hand engrave it. 
because to make the design for a laser engraving of quality is like four weeks of work. Wow. So it's, it's cheap to knock a prototype up in, I don't know, 10 days of an engraving to knock up a prototype to see whether they like the look of the design before they then invest the time making the, the design on the computer. And the same with the, the Longthorns and their side-by-side is it's not worth for the, I don't know, five or 10 they make a year of their side-by-side to program the safety assembly so they just make it by hand. Mm. I, I suppose we're all guilty of, of ignorance. I certainly was thinking, yeah, they'll just knock up an engraving design on a computer real quick. That can't be hard, but apparently it is. So there you go. Yeah. So Longthorn does make a side-by-side? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, Jim doesn't like making them, so they don't he make any. No, no. Yeah, okay. Not at all. <laughs> so I, I wasn't – I didn't know that, or I guess I, I was – I questioned that because – this is a sort of really a side story. I'll get through it quickly. But I, I we have a, a local side-by-side shoot here every summer. I went to it last summer, and I wound up in a group shooting with somebody that I didn't, you know, I didn't know him. I just met him that day. And he had it was, it was it was just a beautiful box lock side-by-side. But I could tell it was new, but it was nothing that I had ever seen. And I'm almost positive it was a Longthorn shotgun. I I don't know the guys. I didn't get his name or number to to call and confirm. But then I I started. It just sort of had that name in the back of my mind. And then I, I saw your video, and I'm like, I wonder if this is where he got his gun from. So I, I don't know that. Do you know if he sells uh, them to U.S. customers? Are, yeah, they do with that. All side locks. All side locks, as far as I'm aware. Oh, so then, all right, it wasn't. Then. Is there is there another one called, like, Thorn Bros or something? Or does that ring a bell at all? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. All right. Uh, that's a totally random story for me that has no uh, there's, a, there's a lot of fantastic makers in the UK, some absolute bangers who aren't relatively well known because they make three or four guns a year yeah so uh, there, there's a lot of names out there and to be fair who knows I'm right. interested to find out now I'm, I'm part of your <laughs> I might have intrigue to, uh, club yeah I might have to to contact the the shoot organizers and get his maybe find out who I shot with yeah, the names of your squad I'm sure <laughs> they give that to you yeah they probably would yeah you see they're... you're definitely too polite I would have been like can I have a look please <laughs> I, you're right, Johnny. I, I am too polite. <laughs> Minnesota, nice. I should have, and I, I know he would have. He would have let me check it out. But I mean, I, what uh, man wouldn't be like proud to share his toys? Right. I mean, that's a lie. Right. I know a few people who wouldn't, but they're not <laughs> nice people. So you, you're supposed <laughs> to share your toys. That's what your parents taught you, right? This is true. This is true. All right, hunting and shooting in the UK. Oh, something else I wanted to comment about. You know, when you sort of we were kind of wrapping up the gunsmithing part and you're reassuring us that, you know, it's not, things are not dead. Things are not over. And I wanted to say that, you know, just a couple hours spent on your YouTube channel, watching some of your videos where you go to the shoots, the clay ranges. I mean, you can see, you can see the, the shooting and hunting culture there. And I guess that's maybe one of the things that I most enjoy about some of your videos, just seeing that like the English countryside and, and the clay courses and, and some of the shoots just totally different than what, what we have or experience over here for the most part. And to see kind of the little nuances as far as like culture and attire and all that kind of stuff. It's just interesting to me because obviously I've got a passion for this stuff. And when, when you have a passion for something, it starts to expand and seep out into other areas. You know, you get that curiosity going. Oh, where do you want me to start, mate? But you're, you're very right. Like it's it, <laughs> the best part of of shooting is how worldwide it is and how much, or or how much you can glean from other cultures. Yeah, and you only become rounded when you start accepting that other people do things in different ways. And I think I, I, everyone's guilty of certainly cross culturally looking at other hunting cultures and going, "That's weird. I can't believe you yes. do that." And then going, 
well, if they do it, they probably think, think the same about us and then subsequently, you know, leaving the, the country and working with people from different countries and realizing that the world is a big and wonderful place and there isn't mm-hmm. much place for, you know, that much of a closed mind. It's weird. But yeah. Yeah. I, for example, tower shoots over here, we don't get them. Like, that isn't something we do over here at, at all. We obviously don't have public land. Like, it, the fact that we obviously share the same language is wonderful, by the way. Right. Yeah. But our hunting cultures are, are similar, but obviously it takes a lot of understanding. And I think on our videos comments-wise, sorry, I'm going to try and actually make some sense here. On our videos comments-wise, we get a lot of people who don't understand how it works. And a lot of, well, the majority of those comments are from Americans who presume all of the birds that we're shooting are let out of cages in front of us or out of a tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that they think that that's potentially weird that we do it our way, but they don't understand our way. And I think we perhaps don't understand your way. I'm going to stop talking. Sorry. I'm just well, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you. I'm glad you went there. And yeah, let's spend some time on it because there are definitely some parallels between between our hunting and shooting cultures. But then there are some differences. And yeah, like let's let's clear some of that stuff up. So a tower shoot. You mentioned that. I've done one in my life, and I I didn't even really know what I was getting into, but I've now done it. And are you glad you've done it? Uh, just once. I'd like to do yeah, it once. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I'm I'm glad I experienced, and the place that I did it was phenomenal. Um, it was I was actually at an at an event for Caesar Carini, so Lovely. like it was a it was a wonderful experience, and I'm glad I did it. But yeah, I haven't found myself desperately trying to go do another tower shoot. But my idea was that yeah, that that is supposed to be simulating a driven shoot, and and like I'm 100 percent admitting here, this is just a totally like this may be unfounded at all, but I was just thinking oh this is simulating driven pheasants which it essentially is but i'm surprised to hear you say that you don't do tower shoots over there <laughs> oh no way man <laughs> you know, we've got some like that would, well i don't think it would be illegal but no one would want to do it like we get funny about people releasing birds after the season has started. i don't say we're funny it's taboo to release birds after the season has started in fact, in our good practice guidance that everyone should be following, although some don't, because in in every walk of life there's always some rogues, that they should be released well before the shooting season, with sufficient time to become, you know, wilded. Mm-hmm. The point being that you know we're not shooting, you know, tame chickens. They have a mind of their own, and it's not. It adds some. It's a little bit more tasteful, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We no, don't I'm, shoot towers. I'm, I'm okay. I, I'm following you there, and I would say there's there is. A bit of clue to that in some of your some of your videos with the gamekeepers. You know the gamekeepers; those are awesome, awesome videos. But let's talk a little bit more about that. So I, again, I, I would not have picked up that up, and I think it adds a ton of context to anybody that whether they've seen your videos or they're now listening to this and they're going to go watch your shoot videos. So talk to me about gamekeeping and the the art and culture of gamekeeping and then let's sort of quickly arrive at the pheasants or the birds are put on these properties and they are all done before the hunting and shooting season opens up they're not putting out birds every morning that you show up to go shoot that's sounds like that's hardly even done if at all over there oh yeah we don't do that either that is okay that would be considered a very very no-go area that's it i've got a, a few american mates who do that and they say it's great. So, so power to it. I'd love to try that one day as well. Um, the, where do we start? Let's start in February. The Well, let's clear up first. Gamekeepers aren't just gamekeepers. Every estate and every part of the country has its own sort of ground. And 
Okay. Go, there's wild birds, and then there's reared and released birds. There's yep. larger scale shoots and smaller scale shoots. So, so there's a, a infinite variety. But I'm going to try and generalize. Firstly, yeah. there's two types of gamekeepers. Let's let's really narrow it down. There's grouse keepers, and there's low ground keepers. Low ground keepers will look after pheasants and partridges. Grouse in the UK are entirely wild, which is why they are so special. If yeah. there's a bad breeding year, they don't shoot. But, you know, the land is managed in accordance. They they burn the heather to keep the habitat right and to reduce, uh, reduce the fire risk. They re-wet the ground to increase re- biodiversity and insect life. And if it all comes together, they put out grit for them and so forth. But they don't feed them. They just manipulate the habitat to be perfect for the grouse, mm-hmm. which, by the way, has a lot of byproducts for other wildlife. Yep. Yeah, I feel I need to defend that. I don't really know why. Um, <laughs> no, the audience of this podcast will be extremely familiar, and I, I will just sort of interject this. Apologies for interrupting, but the parallels between grouse management over there and grouse management over here are so strong in, in that there's you have a you have a documentary film on the grouse moors, which I thought was just fascinating I because we spoke about that. Yeah, the the habitat work that they do, sort of this patchwork mosaic habitat, trying to build up diversity, and you could take a step back and be like, well, it's so logical because you know a grouse over there is not wholly unlike a grouse over here. They it's not an, not unusual that they would have these habitat diversity needs and all wildlife needs habitat diversity so it's very simple in that regard but just to see it happening over there in the same way and it's and it's heather as far like as opposed to like forest over here but very similar patchwork cutting trying to break up the age classes of of the vegetation and create this biodiversity that is good for the birds yeah ton of parallels there I, I don't know whether it's quite as intense over there as it is over here. That might be the only parallel that doesn't stick. But I, I, I don't know. Is there like properly intensively managed areas? Yes. Yes, there are. But it is – I'm talking roughed grouse. So like this would be where I live in the in the northern parts of the country. Roughed grouse, they live in the forest. They require intense – forestry habitat management they require regenerating forests so you can't just leave let a forest sit there and grow older and older and older that biodiversity will decrease as the forest ages and it will lose its abilities to protect and nurture roughed grouse so roughed grouse, yes exactly and and so roughed grouse needs they need this regenerating forest and that happens it doesn't happen because of we hunters we try to we try to you know impact habitat management as best we can but if we're being honest it it happens on a larger scale because of the timber industry and and folks using wood products and the areas of our country that maintain a strong timber industry for whatever the the needs and supplies of those trees are that's where rough grouse habitat remains the best because we have an active timber and logging industry that's that's exactly what's going on that's very interesting yeah so if they're clear felling areas and so so when we're talking patchwork i mean obviously yep. the, the patchwork on a grouse more the patch is i don't know half an acre quarter of an acre mm. something like that when we're talking trees you're talking what, a couple of acres here a couple acres there i, I would say more like no it's we, we, we can have cuts you know 40 acres 100 acres and these are these are very very large, large yeah. yeah large tracts of forest they're i think like you could we could get into a whole conversation about forestry. I mean, that's a whole skill set and a knowledge knowledge base in itself. But like small smaller cuts of varying ages, it's all about 
varying ages and diversity. You know, the more mix you have there, the more edges and the more habitat you're going to have for the bird. So there's more than one way to skin a cat to, to put it simply, but forest forestry and forest management is, is a, yeah, it's a big component to what allows us to continue to have sustainable huntable populations of all wild ruffed grouse. And this conversation has parallels that would go into many of the other upland species that we hunt over here too. It's not just grouse, but yeah. So essentially sort of going on from what I was saying about the the grouse, Mm -hmm. they make sure that the, 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 the three legged stool, they call it uh, habitat feed and protection from predation. Yeah. Yep. So the feed is Heather. The habitat is, I say Heather, the habitat is upland species, uh, Bilberry, blueberry, essentially our sort of miniature blueberry, uh, he- he- and heather are the two, the two main ones, and there's there's a lot of others, but it doesn't really matter. Grasses, mosses, sphagnum moss being a real key one, uh, and protection from predation, and that's where the gamekeeper's job is obviously the habitat management, which gives you the food and the, the habitat, yep. and protection from predation. So a gamekeeper's role in the uplands will be trapping and shooting of pest species. Crows, stoats, foxes, magpies, you know, anything that's going to look sideways at a grouse chick and go, mm, that's yummy, that is legal to control, they will keep to a minimal level, which is where it perhaps gets a little bit intense for some people, although I would like to understand that the rest of the country, all of these generalist predators have free roam, they're just yep. not allowed on the uplands, and that's yep. fair, in my head. Um, yeah. So... And that's what a grousekeeper does. And then when the season comes, they'll do a they'll do a count at the start of the breeding season and the end. And if they have enough grouse, they'll shoot them. And if they don't, they'll wait till the next year and go and crack on then and hope they get a better breeding season. And so that decision as far as whether to hunt or not is that estate by estate? Because yeah, entirely down to the landowner. If yeah, okay, gotcha. Every estate needs a stock. And I, I do apologise to anyone in the UK who's involved in the grouse industry who understands this better than me, but I, I'd like to think I have a fair grasp on it at this point. Uh, every estate has a stock. That stock being the amount of grouse they need on it, whereby there'll be the perfect breeding success. If there's yeah. too many grouse, the chances are the territories won't marry up. There's not going to be enough to look after them and to get the optimal broods off of those. Mm. The disease yep. will be higher so on and so forth. If there's not enough grouse, even if they have the perfect breeding season, there's not going to be the maximum surplus to shoot. So they'll, so let's say X estate has X stock. What they'll look to do is go, oh, we can, let's say for simplicity, we need a hundred grouse to have a good season next season at the end of the season. They've bred. We've now got 400 grouse. We can go out and shoot 300 grouse. If we shoot 200, they're not going to have a good year next year. And if we shoot 400 if we shoot you know all but 10 we're gonna have to wait 20 years for us to get back up to the right amount yeah so it's it's a careful science yep gearing up for your next hunt check out ugly dog hunting company for all your dog supply needs ugly dog hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you whether you're looking for dog collars gps tracking devices kennels beds leads training equipment or first aid supplies ugly dog hunting carries it and a whole lot more New owner of the company and friend of the Birdshot podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. 
For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next Upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yeah, and that, I guess that was the really unique, you know, when what it is, a, it's a single property, and you have you have the, the grouse keeper, and but uh, those were things that, based on what I do and like the things that I enjoy as an upland hunter here, like I appreciated the the concern, and I was just coming at it totally from like without much background on it at all, but just enjoyed seeing. Like I felt like I could have a conversation with with those folks, and we would we would be nodding our heads and smiling a lot because we sort of shared the same interests and passion, and the desire is there to, you know, see the see the birds have the habitat that they need to survive and thrive. And we all, you know, we love these birds for many many reasons, but I think we just have such a close connection to them based yeah. on what we do as hunters and shooters. as you well know, Nick, you can love wildlife and kill it too. Right. You, like you got can. that right. Yeah. And a lot of people don't think that's the case. But the, yeah. the uplands is especially like that. To go up there in spring when you've got... Uh, fou- uh, there's a place uh, in Wensleydale that we got taken to do some filming. And we drove into this bowl and there's a lake in the bottom. And off the lake rise a load of oyster catchers. And there's 50 curlew bouncing around. There's curlew chicks all over the floor. And you go, this is insane. This is paradise. But it's only possible because of all the work that the gamekeepers do. Yeah. However, and it's not however... On a parallel, a, a lowland keeper does a very different thing. It's a very different type. Obviously, I say, let's care about this. The uplands isn't good for much. It's cold. It's really cold. It's really bleak. The only things it's good for is the fact that it's a huge carbon store because all the ground's made of peat. And it's great for wind farms. Um, I think that's about it. And forestry. But forestry isn't good for the peat and the carbon. So that's by the way. Lowlands. It's good for grouse too. It's great for grouse. <laughs> uh, the lowlands is a very different kettle of fish because you can plow it up and plant it. You can build houses mm-hmm. on it. You can put cows on it, sheep on it. You can put whatever you want on it. Like good ground has no end of use. Uh, and a- as such, the, the shooting and the hunting has to bounce off against agriculture, people, and there's a lot more conflict there. Uh, in terms of of people who want to use the ground. Uh, So as such, a wild bird shoot on low ground, they do exist. They do exist. However, they're not becoming rare. They're just a rare thing because what you need is a large piece of land, which in southern Britain doesn't exist. When I say large, we're talking... Getting harder and harder to have a big parcel. Yeah, that doesn't have a housing estate built in the middle of it, to be honest. Yeah. We're a very densely populated country, which is great sometimes. If you want to be close to a McDonald's, we're the best place in the world. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know but going in there with a shotgun and shooting a big mac they would frown upon yes so you know there there are areas where wild birds are thriving but it's a huge amount of work and what it is is also bringing it back from nothing as well for the most part in a lot of these areas um and, and as such most low ground shoots are all right so we've got a farm and we're going to release some pheasants so let's start this in February because it's, it's probably easy just to explain the year. Yeah. After yeah. the shooting season, and this is not parcel. Or at the end of the shooting season, they will catch up some pheasants that are left, and then they will put them in pens, and then they will breed from those. They'll take their eggs, they'll hatch the eggs off, and then they will have the chicks. They'll rear the chicks till about somewhere between, but for a pheasant, six and eight weeks, and then they will mm. put them out in the woods, and that will be now about September time. Okay. 
maybe, well, to be fair, probably actually July time, thinking about it if I wasn't a, a donor. Partridges you release a little bit later because they need to be a little bit older to go out. Uh, and it's all pheasants and partridges, usually uh, red leg partridge, or, uh, which are very similar to chuckers. For okay, those. yeah, that, I was going to ask that, yep. Uh, they're, yeah, they're very similar, let's leave it at that. Yeah. They'll all be out well before the first day of the shooting season. The first day for partridge is the 1st of September. Most partridge will be released at minimum, you know, early August. Okay. And they'll be out. And the keeper will go and feed them. He will plant appropriate covers, be that maize, millet, wild bird mixes, all sorts of stuff. The, the, the choices of cover is endless. That cover also provides biodiversity and feed and cover for other birds, not just partridges. But, you know, we're not going to... It takes no justification on this podcast. Pheasants will have been put into a wood that will have been managed for pheasants in a pen. And I say a pen, it's an open pen. They can get out of it. But, you know, yeah. whilst they're released in there, they'll usually stay inside because they're, you know, they'll learn that's home for a few weeks before leaving the pen. And they're, and they're fed, yeah. Yeah, and it's the keeper's job to make sure they don't get eaten. So yep. southern keepers will also do predator control. The ha- mm-hmm. So the predator control is different. We've got a lot more foxes down south than they do up north, mm. proximity of humans. It's not such an issue to shoot the predators that are taking chicks because the real concern on a pheasant shoot is what can eat your pheasant at five weeks old. Mm. Obviously, yep. we have a huge raptor population in the UK, and we can't touch them, but you can deter them, um, and you can live with them. To be honest, which is is fair. If you're putting how might up, you deter them? Uh, deterrence, uh, bangers, uh, uh, crow scarers. Oh, okay. If you have those uh, hanging CDs and trees, putting radios in your woods. The best, the best thing I did. And we actually filmed it. And we never used the footage, um, although I think it would be used in the project we're doing this year. Uh, was uh, diversionary feeding. Just you, just you feed the birds of prey because for the most part, a lot gotcha. of them are lazy. Yeah, path yeah. of least resistance, whatever takes the least amount of energy to expend to get fed. Yeah, they're going to go for I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, falcons are a bit different, but most sort of most hawk, hawks and kites will happily just go and eat something that's free, like a mm-hmm. bin. Um, but, you know, feed, they were feed, diversionary feeding pigeons. Uh, and, yeah, we went and filmed that, and it was fascinating. Like The birds of prey were waiting right next to a pheasant, and they said they didn't take a single pheasant. All si- well, they t- he, said, he said they took one out yeah. of a thousand. That is yeah. nothing when you saw the amount of, you know, yeah, birds of prey they had there. It was quite cool. And so that is their keeper's job is to make sure those pheasants then survive. They're wilded, they're fit, they're strong, and they can fly. He will feed them. And then come the shooting season, you'll have a shoot day. And a shoot day can work in multiple ways. We obviously do do sort of uh, walked up days where you're, you're walking a line with your friends, very similar to, mm-hmm. I think, probably what a lot of your listeners will be used to. Yeah. Uh, with, with dogs, pointing dogs or spaniels, and you'll you'll shoot what gets up in front of you and shoot it. But that is, to be honest, quite rare. The cultural um, standard would be a driven shoot. So you'll turn up, between six and ten people will turn up, called the guns, shooters, and we'll dress in wonderful clothing. <laughs> yes. And there will be a team of beaters. Those beaters will push out the covers and woodlands where the pheasants have uh, are in the day. And yep. depending, driving birds is a different conversation altogether about how you create a good drive. And they will yeah. push them from one bit of cover to another with the guns in between. Those birds are, everyone thinks it's easy, those birds are wild. So it takes a hell of a skill for a gamekeeper to run his beaters to push those birds over the guns in the first place. And then it takes some skill to bring them down, depending on, obviously, where you are. Some birds yeah. are faster and higher, depending on the ground and the area than others. And it's probably no different to you. You can choose to go somewhere where you can shoot a 
I don't know if your grouse are the same as the grouse in this country, you get soft grouse and hard grouse. The harder life the grouse has, the faster it flies, the harder it is to shoot, the more it, the more wary it is. I don't know if you probably have the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's some parallels there. And the, the skill level can change depending where yes. you would like to go. And perhaps your first time, you don't want to go and shoot high, fast-driven pheasants off of a mountainside. You might like to go to... You know, some somewhere in the you know in Hampshire, where they're going to be twenty twenty five yards climbing over you. So the skill level to to shoot the bird is not so great. This sounds weird now, but yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, hey, I'm I'm following you, and and again, I've got I have some context because of because I've seen the videos. But I gotta say, man, I just having this conversation with you, I have a, a lot more context as far as like what I'm seeing in the videos, and just just realizing that. And it's not that I'm, you know, because we mentioned it earlier. There's there's preserves here in this country where, yeah, the you you go and buy birds and they'll put them out and you can hunt them that day. And it's just it's a different thing entirely. But I just wasn't aware of exactly the ins and outs of how the shoots worked over there. And I think I think this would be me, like sort of conjecturing or or assuming for certain people. But I think a lot of people see a guy standing still on a peg or a post and shooting birds flying by him. And they're just, they're sort of, they're really comparing that to preserve hunting in their mind in that these birds are being pushed towards you. But I think it it changes it for me personally, knowing that these birds are out there. They're, they're wilded birds, as you've said. Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm not here to judge one thing or another, but it's like, I just like having the context is what, is what I'm getting yeah, at. I, I mean, let's be blunt. It's not, it's not hunting in, in that same format of going out with your dog or going after a deer or, or, yeah. hunt, or chasing it down yourself. But it is, it's a group, it's a communal hunt the way I'd like to, to think about it. It's not the yeah. not hunting how people like to think of it as man versus beast. It's a, a community coming together to get food. And yes, it, it, there's a huge sport and enjoyment aspect to it. Yes. Because we, but we could all go and eat McDonald's if yeah. we wanted, um, and it's not easy. It's not inherently easy. Some of some of it is. And I think we're all guilty, perhaps, of going on big days where you're shooting probably too many birds, and probably in terms of what we film and edit. And we've we are this season and definitely next making a conscious effort to show it differently. Because as you say, it's very easy to watch and go, well, he's just stood there doing nothing and he's blowing these birds up. I don't like it. Dislike. Join an mm-hmm. anti-hunting group and mm-hmm. actually have no no understanding. Um, anyway, there you go. I'll move on. That's depressing. The, no, but I think I mean I think honestly, given what you do and also what I do, like when you make when you make whether it's video or I mean conversation is a little bit different. This you really gotta somebody's gotta really really be somewhat plugged in to want to listen to you and I go on and on about this stuff. But like for a video on YouTube that anybody can stumble across, and there's a lot of this conversation going on in the hunting world of like all of a sudden you tune in and you know two minutes into the video you see a bird die or 30 seconds into the video you see a bird you have none of the context of what led up to that point and i guess it's a, it's a reality i mean the people that know and are watching that video know and they understand the context but it's just sort of an accepted reality of the world that some people are going to watch that without context and they're going to leave disgusted and that's that and yeah. we're all sort of evolving and trying to figure out what the best way is to show these things because don't get me wrong i mean i get a ton of enjoyment from watch spending time on your youtube channel because i love this stuff and just seeing other people enjoy it have the same interests and passions and share it like i don't want that to go away 
but there is some conversation to be had of like how how can we best represent ourselves and how can we show this stuff to sort of get the most benefit and the least amount of negative, right? Yeah, there's a responsibility, isn't there, uh, with anything yeah. that we do. It, certainly in a more, um, probably not so much over there, but over here it is a it's a marginalized hobby lifestyle being anything to do with the rural community. And I I don't know, it sounds weird. I've like we said right at the beginning, we all grow and we all change. I think at the start of our career, I probably wanted to show it the way that it was shown by other people. But as I grow and become slightly more understanding of the way it is, I don't want to show death porn quite as much. I don't want to show death porn. There's a lot yeah. of it out there, and as it's not, it's not contextual, and it's it's not like deer shooting where you can have kill shot after kill shot after kill shot because that doesn't happen. Those videos are out there, but they're rare. The general yeah. rule with shooting a deer on a video is you have to find it, then get into a position to shoot it. And, and it's a well, it's a long film with one bang. A, same with walked up shooting. It, there's a lot of work put in beforehand. It's clearly that you're hunting down. But a driven shoot, there is an onus now, I think more than ever, to show that it is not just man walks into field, series of kill shots, look how amazing I am, of the end. Yeah. <laughs> it, it needs to be shown that you know we show a lot more misses than we've ever shown and we'll continue to do so because actually it, it shows that it's not easy. Yeah. Um, and we show a lot more of the community side because that's that's why we do it, right? Isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah, certainly over yeah. here. That's why we do it. Is we do it to go and hunt food with our friends, and you know, there, of course, there's a an element of luxury that goes with it. Even on a small scale, you're going to go and have a lovely breakfast with your friends, and and then go out and shoot something together. And I know that's a slightly weird cultural thing, but it is my culture, and I feel the right that we should exercise to we should be able to exercise that, even if it yeah. is weird. And there, there needs to be some movement. Uh, get off my soapbox in just two seconds. There does need to be a movement, especially over here, to uh, for people to move some of the cultural stigmas that are from the 18th or the 19th century into the 21st. That it's we need to modernize and change a bit. And I think that I would agree with some of our opponents on that. That certain parts of our practices are a bit outdated. But everything changes and everything everything moves on, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, it, that's sort of a common thread. Like what we're, we keep keeps coming up in this conversation. Like you just. You're not going to be able to make decisions today based on the way you saw the world five, you know, because everything changes in five, two, three, four, five years. So yeah, absolutely. Now that's a that's an interesting conversation, and I, we could let's, move, let's move off. Sorry, I mean, yeah. I, I had like this yeah. revelation over Christmas, uh, and I'm still like riding the wave of how I would. Yeah, I, I said, yeah. So I'll, I'll just get off it. Well, yeah, too much time off. It's, it's not good for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> It, it is cool. I, I mean, again, in the, the video world in particular, I think as excited as I am about about seeing this stuff, yeah, there are there are a lot of those questions. I, this was the first year that I wore a GoPro for a, almost all of my hunts and recorded stuff. And like my main goal, I, I wasn't doing it to share it in the same sense that, that you have with your YouTube channel yet. I, I'm wondering what to do with some of the stuff or if I even will. But, you know, I've got a whole bunch of kill shots and like i saved all that stuff because it's me and my dogs and that's my experience and i want that and i'm not about to turn around and all of a sudden pour all those out onto instagram because it would just there would be no context and that's not what i want to do but i do want to share some stuff because i like connecting with other hunters that have the same interests and have seen the same things and you know like when when that something happens to me in the field that has happened to somebody else, that bond that, that you have, it's no different than what you and your friends have when you go to shoots. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I think we're all seeking that. But how do we do that in the right way, I guess? But most of the listeners of this show will be 
they will be familiar with what we do as far as like for enjoyment, sport, a little bit of luxury involved. And like as much as we like to think of sort of like upland hunting here as sort of the everyman sport because it is a low barrier to entry. I mean, there are plenty of people, and, and again, a lot of them listening to this show, like we take it seriously and it's a hobby and it's something that we invest a lot of time and money and effort and resources into and we enjoy the hell out of it. And that's why we do it. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Like you say, it's, it is a hobby at the end of the day and it's something yeah. we invest way too much time and money into for something <laughs> that has no bearing on our survival whatsoever. Uh, yeah. yeah, we're not subsistence hunters, that's that's for sure. <laughs> I wouldn't make a very good one. <laughs> so before we leave the hunting thing, I, like, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to talk guns here in just a second, but when it comes to walk-up hunting, I know that's not, that's not as, as common over there, but have you, have you done a walk-up grouse hunt over pointing dogs and or have you hunted woodcock in in that way or talk to me about woodcock hunting like what are your experiences in that regard i have never you know to break your heart here i i have shot once over pointing dogs 12 years ago okay i'm a i am was a spaniel man at the time so i probably didn't soak it up massively and i still have spaniels but they're, they're not good like that one was um <laughs> No, no, I haven't. It's something I've been talking about going and doing up in Scotland okay. next year. I'd really like to. I've, I've been speaking to a friend about going up there and, and trying that. But yeah, I, I've done lots of. Is it really hard? Would it Sorry. be really hard for somebody to go and find a walk-up shooting opportunity like that? I mean, oh, no, where shooting is so commercial in this country. And I say so commercial. It's easy to buy it and sell it. Okay. Okay. Um, there's a value to it, whereas you know, you can't just go and do it. There's no public land, like I said. But you can you can buy it right. relatively easily. Yeah, uh, yeah, yes is the answer. Yeah, very simple. Go on Facebook, go on the internet, send an email to the right person, and hope they have a date available. Right. Yeah. What about the what about woodcock? I love shooting woodcock. I say I love okay. shooting woodcock. I um, the older I get, the more guilty I feel about shooting because I have a hell of a hard time getting over here. Because obviously they commute they they commute from Russia. Um, Honestly, I did not even know that. <laughs> yeah. So our woodcock, we have a resident population, but it is relatively small. Okay. I, I you know. A couple hundred thousand, maybe. I could be way off. I don't quote okay. me. But you know, it it goes tenfold with our winter population. They come over from Russia and overwinter over here, and that, for the most part, is what we end up shooting. So if you shoot them too early, you are shooting residents, but they breed here. So there's a there's an interesting question going around about whether we should change seasons, and and a lot of people just abstain from shooting woodcock, and a lot of people don't. My problem is, I think they're the most delicious game bird on the planet. Really? Are uh, they a, are they a, a pretty dark meated? Yeah, I can't Dark colored meat. They must be the same as yours, more or less. I, I, I yes, I think more or less. I think they're they're fairly similar. Yeah, yeah. A tra- a traditionally cooked, you cook them whole with the guts in, or is that not a thing over there? No, we yeah, we don't do that. I've definitely heard of that, but that's it's that good. wouldn't be it's typical good. of what we do. Is it's it? Good. Oh, yeah, it's good. You okay. think they only eat okay. worms? So it's it's essentially a bag of meat. It's not like pheasant guts that that are disgusting and smell. <laughs> they, yeah. they smell like meat. It smells good. I I know that probably sounds bizarre, but they, it's um it's worth a go. Yeah, the woodcock is, well, I wouldn't say polarizing, but many people, many people have varying opinions on them. Some people, you know, can't stand them, don't shoot them, don't hunt them, don't want to eat them. And then, but we also have people that love them, love to eat them, love to hunt them. Same way, you know, it's a, it's no different spectrum. Yeah, exactly. What about yourself? I, I I personally think they're one of the hardest things to shoot, driven or walked up. So the way our woodcock work it in, when I'm out roughed grouse hunting, and I say roughed grouse hunting because that's kind of my primary objective, but where I am, it's a very mixed bag hunt. So like during the bulk of the season when I'm hunting in this part of the country, 
I'm going to go out and I'm going to flush rough grouse and woodcock on any given day in the same covers. So it's a, it's really a mixed bag hunt. And when I, when you've got pointing dogs that I do, I don't know if it's, I shouldn't say that it's not exclusive to pointing dogs, but if you've got a bird dog, you're probably going to find both woodcock and grouse. So you're going to have opportunities on both. And I think most people that, uh, that I know and hunt with are kind of, they're kind of taking opportunities on both. I mean, who doesn't want to want a mixed bag hunt when you're out in the woods? So right. yeah, I provide plenty of them. Then why not? Right. 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 And that's, and it was interesting to hear you talk about the resident and the, my, we have that same conversation. You know, we have, we have resident birds here. And then once the, the migration season really picks up, we've got tons of birds coming down from Canada and they fly all the way down to the Southern U S so like really the, they hunt them in the South too. They don't necessarily have resident birds down there, but we have the same thing where it's early season. You're kind of shooting resident birds, which we've generally speaking, there's, there's ample amounts of them. So there aren't conversations about like, should we be shooting them or not? But we do have, we do talk about like when the season should be, because it's a, it's a 45 day season that each state gets to choose when it starts. And you're trying to sort of time the migration and yeah, we have similar conversations here about like when that season should be, but that's probably just universal. Your whole seasons are very short. I always forget like a 45 day season. Our woodcock season is 1st of October, to 31st of January. Yeah, that's, that's long. Uh, woodcock, tasty. For, woodcock for us is, it's short. That is one of the shorter seasons. I think our, our waterfowl season, I think our waterfowl season is 60 days. Don't quote me on that because I'm I'm no longer can be considered a waterfowl hunter. But our grouse season is much you're, longer. Why you've you've uh, like like most people who own pointing dogs, you're too superior now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be one way to put it. My dogs won't swim into a cold icy river and get a duck, so it's probably uh, yeah, fair probably enough. Yeah, I would neither equipped to be a waterfowler. But our our grouse season is longer because they're obviously native birds. They don't go anywhere. But when it comes to woodcock, for me. Our season ends right around the beginning of November, and Which is probably when migration starts. Yeah, well, that's when the migration is ending. It's oh. it's very possible on any given year, the, our season could still be open and the birds will be totally gone. Like there isn't much woodcock hunting to be had after our season ends because they're in all likelihood going to be gone to the south. See, see, that's interesting. We don't start seeing migratory birds until middle of November, generally speaking, in numbers, yeah. good numbers. And that's why I was, when I asked you about the arc of the season back in September, I was kind of curious, like, you know, just, I don't know weather patterns and, and seasons and stuff over there. Like, I imagine they're not totally different than like where I'm at in this part of the world, but I didn't know, like, you know, when is the peak of your hunting season? Is that right now? Would you say? Uh, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. Again, the grouse season's finished, so so those guys. Oh, it the, is the peak. And that, that opens on that's the famous twelfth, right? August twelfth, August twelfth. Yeah, they, and that's their season will peak. Well, depending on whether you like the softest or the, whether you like to shoot in the sun or the rain, will either peak at the beginning or the end, and, and everyone will have a preference really okay. as to when they like shooting grouse. The answer with grouse is it's a privilege to shoot them at any point. So get over yourself. <laughs> um, Love it. Most people the early season shoot days where it's now real mild early on. Early season shoot days are getting harder to sell because less people want them, from what I understand. So let's say I think the peak is probably late November. It's when late November when okay. the pheasants are start, the leaf starting to come off the trees, which is taking a long time nowadays. Is you know end of November, beginning of December, the leaves come off mm. the trees, so you can start shooting the woodlands for, for driving pheasants out of woodlands a lot better. 
Yeah. The partridge have got some age to them, so they're a bit stronger. The birds are starting to get a bit like uh, fully mature, fully, f- you know, they've been exercised for a month or so, so they're getting better and better. The real connoisseurs like shooting them in January because that's when at their peak, there's less of them. It's the wily ones that are left and you're probably going to get better flying birds. But the answer is certainly with, with pheasant and partridge, which is obviously it's where it's the dominant shooting type where I'm from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably December is, is the peak time for that. And wildfowling is whenever, whenever the weather's right, it's good for wildfowling, but that's a different kind of kettle of fish. Yeah, parallels, parallels. It's so it, it like it explains a lot just kind of hearing that, and that's very similar. You know, second half of October into November, the foliage is down, covers down in the woodlands, and that's when the prime time grouse hunting is. That's when most the the pheasant seasons are really picking up. I mean, November is a big big month for a lot of us. October, November, kind of the same thing. But yeah, again, we've got such a long season and so many species. It's probably the same as that. Like, it, it's hard to pin down the perfect point. Yeah. Yep. But if I could only pick up a gun for a month, it would probably be December. Or okay. Got it. All right. We're going to switch to guns. And I, I know we're, uh, I, won't, I won't keep you on Let's here do that. too much longer. But uh, I want to talk, uh, my my friends would kill me if we didn't talk a little bit about English guns while well, I had you on the line at least. But tell me about, you mentioned earlier the English side-by-sides and their, were they sort of in the tanks as far as like, people were uninterested in them now i know there's always a baseline level of interest but the over under sort of came into prevalence as like you know the gun to shoot but you have like these beautiful amazing english side-by-sides where are you at right now as far as people's interest level in side-by-sides and i want to get to how this relates to the conversation about you having to go non-toxic shot and steel shot and that kind of stuff eventually so Obviously, over and under is the dominant gun. Yeah. A lot of people, there are two markets. There's the cheap market and there's the expensive market. And anything in between is suffering into one of those two. Well, I say suffering yeah. into the bottom or benefiting yeah. into the top. Yeah. The cheap one is the, the over and under man goes and buys a, a side-by-side. And that might be uh, AYA, AYA or, or something Spanish. Or to be honest, for the price of it, you can buy box locks over here. Quality Birmingham built box locks for, for pennies. You can buy sleeved guns for pennies. Anything that isn't in that sort of popular limelight, yeah. I, w- I say worthless. It's worthless for what it is. If you were to go and get a a new box lock built in England, the starting at what, let's say thirty grand, and you can buy a second hand one from a hundred years ago built to best quality for four hundred pounds. That's crazy. I mean, I mean that's a, that's a, that's a harsh one. You'd have to be pretty lucky. Yeah. Let's say a thousand pounds is what they top out at. Maybe fifteen hundred for the right one. And obviously, there's exceptions to that rule. If it's a Holland and Holland yes. Cavalier or it's something really minty and nice, you might be up to three or four grand. But for the most part, you can go and buy a nice box lock with a relatively unknown maker, but built to a great standard for, for I don't know, five, six hundred pounds. No, nothing, nothing. Let's be. Yeah, be and, and just just a quick five hundred pounds is six hundred and eighty dollars. So the. Fifteen hundred pounds is two thousand dollars. I mean, two thousand dollar gun. That's you know that's an expensive gun for many people. But that's I was going to say. I'm sorry for saying that. That's a really conceited thing to say. It's nothing when you got it. Well, yeah, as we all know, it's it's a hell of a lot when you haven't. Um, (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. But I I would agree with you in that. That to me that sounds like oh my gosh, like what what a bargain on a you know a gun that was made to a ridiculous standard albeit a hundred years ago but yeah, we got know all that history and all that yes it's, it's a beautiful thing it's, i mean it was yeah. built by you know brummies people in birmingham that is a it's built by built by people in a relatively low paid 
very high industrialized area. We can romanticize it all you like, but it is. Mm-hmm. But they were brilliant, and it's, you're buying an amazing piece of history for nothing. The other end of the spectrum is the big names, the special stuff, and those guns are not rocketing. They they hit a bit of a dip about six or seven years ago. Okay. Um, I mean, it's not a massive dip. Yeah. But now they are well on the way up. Uh, we do quite a bit of work with Holtz Auctioneers, and yep. just looking at some of the prices those guns are achieving is it's not mind blowing, but it's a serious wedge. You know, when a there was a, a boss double trigger in the last sale that had had a spliced stock so a sort of semi-restock the headwork was original but it had been cut off at the grip and rejoined to another piece of wood oh okay it, yeah it, i've seen that done before it, it's um yeah uh, yes that will leave it at yeah yeah <laughs> um i mean it rips the value out of it completely it was not a nice piece of wood it was loose on the face it not it did not wait well, had two forends one ejected the other one didn't neither of the forend woods were nice one was non-original the other was original but it was battled to hell but that original wood didn't match the wood of the stock so it was pointless neither worked and the gun itself was ropey let's be honest and that hit four thousand five hundred pounds that uh, for a scrap gun in my, in my humble opinion it's not it's a boss yeah. and the boss name carries a lot of weight but that just gives you an indication like it's it's serious. However, I also understand from a lot of friends in America, it's still worth buying them over here because we still get them at better value than you do over there. Yes, yes. The, when I see, when I watch, I mean, sometimes I'm I'm afraid to even watch you and Simon on the Holtz videos because, like, I know I'm just going to be sitting there gritting my teeth at like what you can buy, like an AYA number two for yeah, or, a thousand pounds. You know, yeah, the prices that get that you guys are quoting, it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't touch that. <laughs> yeah, the, you guys I need make to call it Johnny. Real, you guys make it real difficult to bring them in. Really oh difficult my gosh, to bring them man. in. Yeah. I um, I've been well. I've got a few friends who export, but it's not worth it on the low value stuff, and that's the real. Or else I'd take a container. Why is that? There. Because you pay so much in fees and exports and imports and stuff. It's quite easy to get it out of here. It's very difficult to get it in over there. Mm, yeah. um, you got well. First thing you need, obviously, you mark the guns but with the importer's name there's mm. taxes it costs a fair amount i think it worked out about two and a half thousand dollars for four guns or something which Jeez. i mean it's not bad if you're buying valuable guns but if you if you're correct. not correct yeah and i presume there's some import tax on top of that as well i i don't know yeah yeah i think there's tariff and yeah yeah i'm i deal with that a little bit now and what we were talking about upland gun company and importing stuff from italy yeah i'm getting more and more familiar with the stuff but it's the sort of thing it would be worth doing on a commercial basis but the fact that nobody's doing it probably means it's not viable Mm, yeah or maybe it is maybe maybe we should delete this part of the podcast and we'll end up millionaires (laughs) well i know there i know that there are there are certainly a few i could name a handful of guys that are specializing in importing english guns one that comes to mind is kirby hoyt of vintage doubles i always go to him just to look at and see what he's got coming in because he's got a steady supply he's obviously got some sort of some sort of supply chain figured out where he's bringing these guns in and he basically what he's bringing to market this is my opinion my like perspective is affordable english doubles for the american upland hunter bird hunter wing shooter and yeah, it's a good it's a good baseline, I guess, for people that are interested. I would recommend checking out his stuff. And that see. is vintagedoubles.com, yeah? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I'm just gonna, do you mind if I have a quick – I'm having a quick look, whether you mind oh, it or not. Sorry, here you go. Have at it. Yeah, he's on – I don't know if you go on gunsinternational.com. You probably don't, but well, – uh, Not a lot. I, I guess there's a lot of links. It's interesting to look. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's got, he's got a lot of stuff. But again, I think like what I end up seeing is like – 
the price that yeah that- yeah i've just uh, just clicked on his website and his homepage is yeah. a churchill premier sidelock the top of the line churchill featuring best quality through and through and it's a beautiful gun but thirteen thousand mm. dollars i understand that that is just what they go for over there but that it hurts my eyes yeah so so that's that's significantly more than what you would pay for a gun like that I, over there i couldn't imagine spending more than three grand on it yeah, uh, <laughs> Kirby's got a Kirby's got a Dixon round action oh, too right now, which yes. I was, I was going to bring that up. You did a video on the Dixon round action. Yeah, We've that, talked about it on this show before. Uh, I, it's a life goal of mine to own one of those guns. Yeah, they are Simon's little um, yes love thing. Yeah. I, and to be fair, I can see why every part about it. It's built to such a, a high standard. Yeah, a Dixon and Son round action, but yeah, that round action is only eight thousand dollars. Right, but it was like. I mean, what, it might, I might be. Whereas sweet, over here, I mean, we'd be paying that and a bit, probably. Really? Yeah. So there you go. Huh, interesting. Swing, swings and roundabouts. Okay. Sleeved barrels. First of all, let's start with the basics. What does it mean when we say it has sleeved barrels? So a, a standard side by side barrel, and talking vintage side by sides, they're chopper lump or, or demi block. They mm-hmm. are a barrel tube with the breech block attached, made as one piece, and then their two things are soldered together with ribs attached. That, that, that's the basics. Yep. A monoblock, just to put it into perspective, just so that we're all on the same page, is when yes. you ha- you make the monoblock, the bit that actually joins with the face, the hinge, and the action, and you have two holes in it, and you stick two tubes, and you solder two separate tubes in. What happens when you sleeve it is essentially you're creating a monoblock out of the breech end of a demi block or, or um, chopper lump set of barrels. Yep. Okay. It, it's fairly simple. To do a good job is is very skillful. And nowadays it's very expensive, but there was a period 40 years ago where, or 30 or 40 years ago, where it wasn't expensive and it was worth doing and lots of people did it. Mm. It rips the value out of guns on, on that note, over here at least as well, which right. can be a great thing. A great thing. Okay, so so a sleeved, because this is where I, I was confused. I, well, I didn't know if, so when they sleeve it, they're basically cutting the tube off at the chamber, say, that that yeah. still yeah, just after. fits into the gun action, and then you're adding a they, new partial tube. Yeah, they mill it out, and they stick another tube in. Gotcha. Okay. Because I had heard from somebody that it maybe was like a full new set of tubes or barrels, but it doesn't sound like that. No, that is essentially, you're is. creating a, um, a monoblock set of barrels, sort gotcha. of, in a roundabout way. If it, it's, it's not correct to say that, but that's essentially what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, what again? What it does is rips the value out of guns because they're no longer original. There's a bit of a stigma right. about it not being original. However, what yeah. you can end up with is a classic gun with thicker tubes than it came with, which is much more capable of taking modern shots. Mm-hmm. Providing it's done well, the gun doesn't bounce too dissimilarly, and you've already ripped the value out of it. So it doesn't matter if you then go and use it hard, which means it's no longer collectible, which brings it into my world where you can actually take a gun and go and use it, which is part of the fun, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. And that, that's a conversation that I think is, will be familiar to many people listening and like understanding the idea of original condition versus a gun that maybe you make a concession. It's not original, but I want to use it. I'm the bird hunter. I'm the wing shooter. I'm looking for something that I can use and just what compromises am I willing to make? And do, you know, do I care if it has a new stock or do I care if it has sleeved barrels? And that all plays into value, which, you know, we could spend hours and hours talking on gun value for sure. Definitely. And again, it depends what kind of person you are and whether you want to use it hard or whether you want to use it soft and whether the original condition matters or not. Mm -hmm. But I mean, to me, I like original guns, but it, it means that you can, you have to look after them a little bit better and it does change, changes the game. Right. Changes the game, doesn't it? Like you're not going to buy, for example, a Woodward. You could buy a nice Woodward side lock ejector for 
somewhere about, uh, let's say £10,000 in, in good condition and go and use it and look after it and take it to your best events. However, I am not in a position in life, although I sound posh, I, I'm not. You know, most of the shooting I do is quite rough and ready. <laughs> and I, the, the equipment, as you were well aware, gets treated accordingly. If you're in the dirt, the gun comes with you. <laughs> um, and so I, I own a James Woodward, but it's sleeved and had had some work done to it. It's in really terrible condition. But the the price reflects it. So, however, the it, it sounds strange when you say it out loud. Is the collectors think that's really snobby, right? And I I suppose for a part of me, I get that totally, and I I have the ability to turn the snob on as well. Obviously, it comes with the it comes with the territory. But <laughs> you know, my, my Woodward was not ten thousand pounds. Yeah, you know, I mean, it wasn't a thousand, but nobody would want it. it. It's a it's sleeved. It's a bad sleeving job as well. But I tell you what, it's still a Woodward, so. So on a sleeved barrel, can you see? Can you see that, or should you be able to see that line, like three, four inches ahead of the breech, the chamber, that seam, as you would normally see on a monoblock barrel? If you get a good job done and then it's blued, no, you you shouldn't see it. Okay, no. However, obviously there's a line there, and over time, one piece of steel will, the blue will change color. Over sure, that time. sure. If you look at it, I, I've seen it a couple of times. A lot of the time in the past, I used to hide it. I've I've had a, a put a put a friend in touch with the guy he actually ended up sending it to italy to have it done um just for price yeah. and they then engraved a bit like on a beretta where they engrave over the end of the yes. monoblock uh, engraved yep. line and i thought that was the classiest touch i'd seen i was like actually that is a real honest way of saying i'm sleeved i mean we've got to get it proofed and stamped to say it's sleeved in this country yeah. so it's not like you can yeah. hide it but i thought that was a nice that was a nice touch yeah just to, not trying know, to be something that it isn't you just being i'm i'm honestly sleeved yep I'm embarrassingly sleeved. Whatever. You <laughs> yes. Yeah. Shame me now. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, a couple more for you here, John. Yeah, go for it. When it comes to value in the in the, give me a couple examples or what you would look for for somebody looking for vintage gun. It can be over under or side by side, but vintage gun like lots of value for the money. In you know in that you know maybe one thousand to twenty five hundred pound range like what are you going to go looking for that's a tough one isn't it um yeah <laughs> it's whether you go top of the bottom or bottom of the top you know the thousand to twenty five hundred range you're going to enter the side lock market or you're going to dominate the box lock market okay i would I personally if you gave me that budget i would look for a box lock i mean you might luck out don't get me wrong there's always exceptions to the rule but if you want a, a, a sure thing i would buy a box lock and I would probably look for some pigeon gunny properties in it as well, just out of personal preference. And you would probably get a best quality box lock, you know, really beautifully built in really good condition for £2,000, maybe to it, with very modern features. And I, I'm mm. not saying that I want to buy a side-by-side to be modern, but my the majority of my shooting is with an over-and-under, so it's important that if I pick up a side-by-side, it has... It doesn't take me too long to get used to it. If it's mine, you know, if it's actually going to be a gun that I'm going to use, you want to, right. you want to be able to use it with relative ease. Um, yeah, I'd look for a flat filed rib. And to be fair, there's plenty of them because obviously that flat filed rib came in or unfiled, just a flat, wide-ish rib, yeah. a bit more weight, <sighs> capable of taking 32 gram loads. You know, I'm a big guy. I don't want a, a Churchill 25. Yeah. That's what I'd look for personally. Although there's, there's a big school of thought that would go, you could buy, like that boss I was talking about, if you hunted around, you could buy a ragged old Holland and Holland and you could get a pretty name with a, a dodgy base. But I want a gun that's going to look after me and go bang and bang and bang and bang. And when 
don't know about you. I quite like having something that's a little bit different that takes a little bit more to appreciate. So like such a tart. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know that I would like stamp myself firmly in that category, but I did end up with, and I was telling you about this. I, I had set out, like it was a goal of mine to own. I wanted to own, I wanted to own an English gun. I, I compromised on that and I don't own an English gun yet, but I wanted to own, I wanted to own a 12 gauge European gun, like from the golden era of gun making. I wound up with this, it's a Gio, it's a French name on it. And again, talking to my friend, Greg Elliott, and I mentioned to you and like the best I can tell is this gun maybe was made in Belgium, but it's very, it's a, I think it's a, and again, consider this coming from an American guy who like, you know, I've, my knowledge is, is somewhat limited, but I think it's a great representation of a gun that was made in the late 1890s. It's it just has, I mean, the piece of wood on is credible. The engraving is is remarkable, just the super fine scroll. And I mean, it's I just wanted to own something that was made in that era. And now I guess I own something that's just a little bit different because best I can tell about this Gio maker is kind of a mystery maker slash retailer is probably the more appropriate way to put it but it's a phenomenal piece of gun making history and i own it and i've killed some birds with it now so i'm happy <laughs> that's important right it's, yeah i, I that, it does it sounds weird doesn't it? it's nice to have something different it adds yeah. to the intrigue like there's a yeah. million holland royals and i'm not dogging on the holland royal because it's one of the best cyber sites ever built but it's it isn't it cooler to have Woodward than it is a, is a Holland? Yeah, obviously, yes. Um, and that's not always the case, but yeah. There's a million different avenues and, and you know directions you can go in, in the vintage gun market. And it circles back to, I guess, the thing that sort of bonds us, the the history and the culture surrounding gun making, if you have an interest and a passion of it, like the connections that you can make across borders and, and countries and cities and towns it's just it's crazy how you know this these tools these firearms like the history and the weight that they carry and that you know they can spawn conversations it's like an this. international language it really is and you can sit down at a table with someone and if there's just that little thing you could talk for hours and i think i have yeah. on multiple occasions in different countries and you just go and talk and yeah. talk and talk and you know the conversation doesn't leave that providing you you know each of you isn't I was going to say an asshole. I was saying, hey, yeah, there you go. It's come out now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, nice job. You kept it. You kept that in check the whole whole interview, Johnny. Uh, I, I, that's not a real cuss. Though. That's not a real. I don't word. think so. No, no that's like so. that. That like passes for yeah, appropriate. For it's twenty twenty two now. Come on. Uh, all right, I got to ask you this: If you were going walk up shooting tomorrow, what gun would you be carrying and why? Oh wow, um, long form titanium. Okay. There you go, because it's cool, and it's on the top of my mind. Give um, me the basic specs for folks that haven't seen the video. Give me the basic uh, specs. It is a 32-inch barreled over and under box lock gun. Uh, I say box lock. It's not. It's a trigger plate. It's a side plate to trigger plate. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's a trigger plate gun, which gives you the reliability. Uh, you know, side lock over and unders have never been something that I've been utterly keen on. The trigger plate mm -hmm. is the better option in every regard. The side lock is smarter. And, you know, I've had an SO4, and it was wonderful. But in terms of reliability, there's a reason we all use trigger plates. Um, and the barrels are made out of one piece of titanium. So Longthorn yes. are famous for making all of their barrels from one piece of steel. So when we were talking about monoblocks and chopper lumps earlier, they just take a 27 kilo lump of steel generally and they mill it down to a 1700. That was super cool. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they decided, well, they decided I ended up bullying Jim into making one out of titanium. <laughs> well, he said he could do it, and I said, well, do it then. And we ended up, over the course of months, telling him just do it. And 
you know, it cuts 45% of the weight out of the barrel. So it feels like a 28 ball. Wow. Except it's got 32 inch. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever shot. You know, I, I would out of choice. I'd love a, I, I had for a very short period of time a 28 ball hammer gun from the 1880s. And that was a wonderful thing. Um, I would take that if I was going to be cultured. But yeah, that titanium over and under is bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Does that affect like how they get the balance of the gun with the barrels being that I mean, I'm sure it does, but like how do they, do they still achieve sort of like hint pin balance or? Uh, Yeah, pretty much actually. So they made a real point when we were picking out pieces of wood to pick the lightest possible piece of wood. Mm, Uh, And then they, same as a Beretta game gun versus a Beretta Sporter. What's the difference? With the game gun, they mill half the stock out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, And it was a similar thing. So he bored an extra hole in the back of the stock and yeah, job done. Excellent. Yeah, very bizarre thing. That's probably what I pick, but just because it's on the tip of my tongue. But then it's not. It's not my area of expertise. So the only other, well, most of the other times I've gone walked up shooting, I've just, I used to take my Maruku, which is nine pounds of twelve bore, and just get over it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, to give you better off with that long thorn. Yeah, yeah. My my, my <laughs> standard type of walked up shooting, you know, to put it into context, is you know walking uh, a kilometre across a grass field with a few hedgerows hoping something gets up and then walking back to the car, not, you know, out all day. And I see you guys, or I see your Instagram certainly, and, and you're properly kitted out for it. You've got the gun, you've got the vest, you've got all the, you're going out on a proper mission, not, you know, <laughs> skirting around a couple of fields and walking back to the car in the end with a, hopefully a pigeon and a pheasant and got something for dinner. It's a different, yeah. it's a different religion. Well, yes, yes, there are, there are differences, but even what I do, you know, I'm, I'm hunting out of my truck and we move around and I hunt a couple spots of the day and I, I don't, I'm not hiking in deep into the remote back country to hunt grouse. It's a pretty, um, it's a, we're lucky that it's an accessible thing, but that it goes back to that conversation we had about forestry. Like what I do as far as grouse hunting, I have access to the woods because of the infrastructure that the forestry and logging puts in there and that's it's it's sort of a symbiotic relationship between grouse hunters or any hunters and and the forestry professionals and the logging professionals. Uh, and that is on public yeah. land or uh, yes yeah yeah i i hunt like 99.9 percent public land is what i hunt i yeah. hope you understand how lucky you are right well uh, yeah i think i think we could all everybody listening to this podcast could use that reminder and yeah we, we didn't even talk about that but yeah most of us hunt all almost primarily public land and yeah, we are we are so lucky, even despite the fact that we don't always recognize it. There is, yeah, to put it into perspective, there is very little free shooting in the UK. Mm. There is nowhere you can rock up and just pull the trigger. Even, let's say if there's no money changing hands, there, there's there's always a cost, right? If you want to go pigeon shooting on someone's land, you've you've got to put in the time, the effort to help them out in some other regard and earn that. You've got to be their friend. You've got to be their family. You've got to go yeah. eating for them. You've got to do something to earn the privilege even to shoot, you know, pest species. Uh, the, the only exception to the rule is wildfowling. But even then, you've got to pay to be a member of a club. There is always an exchange of money. And I, I say that. there's I understand that you guys have to pay for your hunter's license and things. So there's always right. an exchange of money somewhere. Yep. But at least you're giving yours. I say at least you're giving yours to the government. Perhaps that's actually not so palatable after all. Give them enough of our <laughs> yeah, bloody money. That but, could be debatable. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a wildfowling is the closest thing we get to you guys because most of the the marshes are owned by the crown or, or okay. by 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 local governments, and wildfowling clubs rent them off of them. But you know, that aside, you you are so blessed. I I dream of that opportunity. Yeah, 
I, am, I imagine that our, our barriers to entry and the fact that literally somebody could go to a store tomorrow, buy a pair of boots and a shotgun and a hunting license and hit public land the next day. That's I mean, pretty yeah, cool. We've got, we've got very few barriers to entry, relatively speaking. Let's put it into perspective that to go on a driven pheasant shoot, let's say if you want to go on a 200 bird day, which is, yeah, I'd say it's average, it's, it's a larger day, would cost you 1,000 to 1,200 pounds. Per, per gun? Yeah. Wow. And again, it doesn't have to be that expensive. I was on a day yesterday. Uh, I put a day together for, for a few of my friends uh, at a friend's shoot where he's the gamekeeper. And that cost us £240 each for seven of us. We shot 58 birds. We took all of our food. We ate half the bag for lunch in a curry. It was an amazing day. Yeah. But that would still have all cost us all £300 each for a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That that does put it into perspective in a big way, I would say. Yeah. And that's about yeah. as cheap as you can do driven shooting. It's not, it's not yeah. you could probably do it cheaper if you tried, but not really. Sure. If you want to go and shoot driven grouse, that's £200 a brace. And let's say you shoot, shot a 50 brace day. That's, um, yeah. You know, it's a couple of thousand pounds per gun to stand in a button and shoot a, 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 yeah. a dozen birds. It, you're lucky. I, there you go. That, that's, Holy man. Yeah, that's for, that, that's for danger. So when you're saying like 600 pounds for a gun isn't expensive, it's all about perspective. And I'm not saying that we're, people in the UK are rich or hunters are rich because there are so many reasonably priced or cheaper avenues into it, be that wildfowling, pigeon shooting, rabbit shooting, yeah. vermin control, shooting one day a year. You know, or, or working your dog sure. in a game shoot, you can beat, you can participate in a lot of different ways to what you can. But yeah, when you're talking six pounds for the gun, that would be the cheapest part of going shooting pheasants. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, wow. crazy, huh? Very crazy. It makes me sick to say it out loud. If I took you grouse hunting over here, you would, you'd probably be okay with the the 32 inch barrels. Many people would be like, that's way too long for the grouse woods, and and it's it's longer than you need. But I don't mind shooting a little bit longer barrel on on a double gun. I don't have any. I shot 29 inch barrel gun all year this year, and I did just fine with it. So, yeah. But you would be it would be nice and light for you. So, yeah. Yeah, and nice little, a, I say a, 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 a 32 inch 28 ball would be. I say that that day I shot yesterday was all on small balls, four tens and 28s. Yeah. And I, I've never, to be honest, shot them at game in in any seriousness before, and I fell in love. Those things are potent. I know you're a fan, but yeah, yeah, mega. Well, Johnny, what is we're we're gonna wrap up here. I just wanna I wanna circle back to TGS Outdoors. So I'll ask you where where folks can go to check out stuff. But what what do we have to look forward to? What do you got coming up? Tease us a little bit with TGS Outdoors and uh, it's it's YouTube season for a lot of us here. Winter's setting in full swing. <laughs> so uh, this year, what do we have planned? We've got quite a year planned in terms of quality content. We spent a, a real good bit of effort this year sort of moving away from just doing reviews to doing more of an entertainment thing. So you'll have seen the clay tour and a lot of factory tours and a lot more topical mm. stuff. So cool. we've got uh, some clay tours. Clay tours are fun. Essentially, we go to a clay ground, we shoot some clays, we have some fun. We've got a few different features to throw in this season that are going to be quite cool in, as part of that. Uh, I'm going to take up competitive clay shooting this year for the first time in a decade to to film that, to just show that side of shooting. Cool. Um, we've got four game shoots in the bag ready to come out there when well, i say ready to come out they're in the bag there's footage that's going to take a lot of time to put together yeah, yeah. uh we're coming to america are you really uh, apparently so get so, out of town well i don't know the details too much of that yet but longthorn have released their pistol and they want to go and do some cultural exchanges with pistol youtubers and we can show them how to shoot a shotgun properly <laughs> uh, and that'll be at some point Very in the summer cool. okay awesome as well as we do a lot of work for the National Game People's Organization, and these two videos are going to be the two things that I think you will enjoy the most, and I'm probably going to enjoy the most making this year. That's a lie. There's a couple of other little projects. We're doing one on Birmingham gun makers, 
It's going to be a little mm. passion project that I'm going to do over the next sort of three months. Just nice. a little mini mentory on Birmingham gun makers and how the trade was and that kind of thing. But we've got, we're doing two and those are how driven pheasant shooting works. And what mm-hmm. is driven grouse shooting? Awesome. Uh, because awesome. this conversation we've had today is something I have all the time. The comment section, I would just like the ability to drop someone a link. We did a film on the Prestige, um, the William Powell Prestige, which is uh, made by Rizzini for William Powell to a lovely specification. Yep. And that uh, I think went, for some reason, a bit mad in America, which is wonderful. Except for the fact that it does look like we're stood on peg right at the beginning, just shooting birds out of boxes to anyone who doesn't know, because there's no context, because it's a gun review and the the shooting footage. I shot it on peg, so we yep. put that footage in. So I would like the ability to reply to a comment with the film "What Is Driven Pheasant Shooting." So this conversation today, we could go, guys, you should go and watch the "What Is Driven Pheasant Shooting" on the TGS Outdoors YouTube channel. All you need to do there is search TGS Outdoors on YouTube, and it'll come up. Boom. There you go. Something like that. Um, yeah, that's what I'm, that, 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 that is the project I'm looking forward to most. Explaining what we do in a real candid fashion over a sort of 40 minute feature. It's a big project, but it should be pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. Hopefully that'll be a, that'll be a continuation of, of this conversation for folks listening here. And well, it's been a bit of practice for me. Thank you. Yeah. There, there you go. Yeah. My, uh, uneducated questions, you get practice answering those and that'll help you make a better film, right? (laughs) Genuinely that, that will, I would love anything that you sort of take away from today in, in format and anything that anyone didn't get from today's, you know, 10 minute conversation. And I, because it's real easy for me because I was born, not born and bred with it, but it's something I've been working in in, for 15 years to take a lot of things for granted. Right. And we're all guilty of that. Yes becoming too cliqued yeah well i will i will just sort of mention that you know if the listeners have questions or feedback they know how to uh how to direct those towards me and you're not that hard to find either so we'll uh we'll encourage them to to ask those questions and submit that feedback but johnny it has been my pleasure to have you on the podcast i thank you for all the time you've given us on this uh friday afternoon getting on the evening now i uh, i'm gonna let you go here but i i look forward to keeping in touch with you i will eagerly look forward to the to the new films and videos coming out on tgs outdoors i'm a big fan i hope sincerely hope you keep up the great work man you're, you're doing a great job and i appreciate everything you do Mate, thank you so much for having me. It was um, it was actually a really interesting conversation. It's always wonderful to talk to people about parallels and yeah, from both sides. Remember yeah. not to take your stuff for granted because both sides are amazing in their own way, and they should remain to be that right. And that's cool. I agree. And hopefully, when we come over, it'll be cool to hook up. And it will be in the summer, so I guess there's not a lot of hunting to do in the summer. We're going to smash some clays up together. It'll be good fun. Yeah, we could smash some clays. Yeah, yeah. You have to keep me keep me in the loop on that because yeah, if uh, if our paths cross, I would uh, I would certainly enjoy breaking some clays with you. But yeah, keep me posted, man. Keep up the great work, and we'll keep in touch. Thanks again for the time, and you have a great evening and weekend. Might have a wonderful weekend. We'll speak to you soon. All right, take care, Johnny. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Eucanuba Sporty Dog, and Upland Gun Company. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.